Has something in the Bible ever kept you up at night? Have questions of your faith ever driven you crazy? How many hairs do I have? What did God do on his day off? Have you ever had a question you were just too afraid to ask? Will my dog go to heaven? Where do babies come from? When a bell rings, do angels really get wings? Well, now all your questions will be answered with America's favorite church game. Ladies and gentlemen, get ready to... Stop the Pastor! With your host, the beacon of the Bible, the guru of the gospel, he puts the attitude in the Beatitudes. Ladies and gentlemen, Clay Paul! Well, good morning. My name is Stump, and uh, I'm one of the pastors here. No, seriously, I'm Clay. If I haven't met you, my name's Clay, and I'm one of the pastors here and we're just so glad that you guys came out this morning. And if today is your first time here, we hope that you really will stop by our guest center and the folks there would love to answer any questions that you have. And I'm pretty excited about this, uh, this two-week series, if that's what we want to call it. Um, we're going to be answering uh, a bunch of questions that you guys asked over the last couple months. I think there were, I don't know, about 25 or 30 different questions. And I've picked and chosen uh, some of those that I think uh, will be a lot of fun, some that are challenging. And I was really impressed with the questions. And they came from adults, they came from teens, and actually some of the better ones came from the kids. And so with that, let me start with the first question for Stump the Pastor. Did Jesus have a pet? How do you answer that question? At some sense, I don't know. I mean, you know, you kind of look through the New Testament. I've read through it maybe, I don't know, 100, 150 different times. And I don't see Jesus walking around with a little dog on a leash or, or something like that. And as I was chewing this, I was thinking, you know, he was probably too busy to have a pet that would hang out with him. And, you know, he would clean the you know, dog or stroke the cat's back or whatever it is. But then I thought about it for a little while. And I realized that maybe in some sense he did. Because think about it like if you were living off in a cabin in a woods uh, for just years and years, would you have a pet or would you just have a bunch of animals around that you just enjoyed being with? And would you call them pets or not? You know? And so when you think about it, take a look here in Luke chapter 12. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? Yet not one of them is forgotten by God. God's actually interested in what's going on with the sparrows. Indeed, the very hairs of your head are all numbered, and I'm not going to answer that question because I keep losing them, and I'm not sure how many more I'm going to have left. Uh, but don't be afraid. You are worth more than many sparrows. Consider the ravens. They do not sow or reap. They have no storeroom or barn. Yet God feeds them. And how much more valuable are you than the birds? So if your kid asks you, if one of your kids asks you, did Jesus have any pets? My answer to that would be, I don't know if Jesus had any pets that hung around with him on a daily basis, but does he love the animals? Absolutely. And were the animals glad to see him? I bet that they were. And so in some sense, from that perspective, yeah, maybe Jesus has a pet. But even more important than that, we get the, we get the understanding that God cares about his creation, he cares about the animals, and even more importantly than that, he cares about us. And that leads to the next question, which is, do pets go to heaven? How's that one? So I was asking a, a number of different 
uh, of my friends what they thought about that question. And one of them, who's uh, kind of crotchety at times, immediately responded, he says, I don't know about all of them, but I sure know some that aren't going to heaven. You know, bit me in the leg last week or whatever it is. So another tough question, do pets go to heaven? So some years ago, uh, a little girl asked Billy Graham that question. The way she put it was, you know, Mr. Graham, will my horse be in heaven? And I'm, just, I'm dying to hear this answer. And he responds and he says, if you need that horse in heaven in order for you to be happy, that horse will be there. And I thought, that is a wise answer because God cares about us. He cares about our happiness. And when we're in heaven with him, it's a place where there's no more tears, there's no more crying, there's no more pain. And if we need our pets to be there in order for us to be happy, our pets will be there. But if you want to dig just a little bit deeper into that, into that question, think about what that child is asking. She's beginning to ask the question, questions related to death and pain and, and suffering and that sort of thing. And most kids, fortunately, don't experience the death of human beings very often, maybe not for many, many years. I know in my life growing up, there really weren't uh, people in my life who died until like I was in high school. And so for children, the first death that they experience is going to be animals, whether it's the, the bird or the squirrel that they see on the side of the road or their goldfish or whatever pet it is that dies. So they're beginning to process and ask these kinds of questions. And they know instinctively that death is unnatural. It's not the way that it ought to be. They don't have a sophisticated understanding of it, but they know that something is wrong with death. And so they're beginning to ask questions like that. And if we, if we look at this question again, will there be pets in heaven from another perspective, well, ask yourself, go back to the very beginning of the Bible in the book of Genesis. There were pets, not pets, there were animals in the Garden of Eden. There were animals. God created the animals for our enjoyment and for his pleasure as well, I think. And then if you look at the end of the Bible, or actually if you look in the middle of the Bible in the book of Isaiah, you find this passage here. The wolf will lie down, with the, will live with the lamb. The leopard will lie down with the goat. The calf and the lion and the yearling together and a little child will lead them. And this is talking about the future. This is talking about eternity. And what God is saying is that in eternity, there are going to be animals, and they're not going to be eating one another. They're going to be getting along well, and you can have the children playing with them. So when you ask the question, are there going to be pets in heaven? Are there going to be animals in heaven? Ultimately, I'd say, I don't know if there are going to be pets in heaven, but I think we're going to be a lot more surprised about some of the people who we're going to see there than about some of the animals that we're going to see there. And so, yes, I think that God cares about the animals. I think that he loves the animals. And I think that we are going to see, in some sense, animals uh, in eternity. That leads to sort of the adult version of the question. When you ask the question about, are there going to be pets in heaven? And it, it begins to lead into the question, why do bad things happen to good people? Why did my pet have to die? Why did my, one person asked, why did my child die and suffer and all that? And, you know, it goes on. And we ask those sorts of questions. And I want to answer that question, but I want to hold it for just a few minutes because the next question that, that uh, came up, I think is going to be helpful in setting up the answer to the question, why do bad things happen to good people? And that next question is, 
how do we reconcile the loving God of the New Testament with the vengeful God of the Old Testament? You look in the New Testament, God is love. And you got, you know, the, the greatest commandment, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, followed by love your neighbor as yourself. And it's love, love, grace, etc., all over and over in the New Testament. And in the Old Testament, you've got this vengeful, what appears to be this vengeful, wrathful God who's destroying nations and, and different things like that. And how do you reconcile? Are they two different gods or is God changing? Is he becoming, you know, maybe a little more uh, gentle and kind as we move to the New Testament or, or what? And what's, go what's going on there? And this is a, it's a great question. And one of the challenges uh, of this question is, we could spend the rest of the morning answering that question and still there would be follow-up questions to that. So I recognize that. But what I want to do is kind of give you a, a couple of thoughts that may be helpful and give you a framework to look at it. And if I wanted to give a short answer to that question, I'd probably start by saying, if you read the Old Testament carefully, you find there's an awful lot of love and there's an awful lot of grace in the Old Testament. It's not all wrath. There's actually a huge amount of love, and a huge amount of grace. And in fact, those two commands that Jesus was quoting, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself, they came from the Old Testament. And so he's just quoting them and bringing them into the New, the New Testament era as well. And if you look at the New Testament, there's an awful lot of wrath, and there's an awful lot of judgment. You just look at the book of Revelation, and you're blown away by God pouring out his wrath on the earth. So to say that the God of the Old Testament is a God of vengeance and no love and no grace, and the God of the New Testament is a God of love and grace, and he's never angry at sin or anything like that, that's not really an accurate answer. But it's a short, that's a short way of looking at it. But I want to take a little bit of time and look at the big picture of the Bible and look at kind of the main storyline of the Bible. Because as we do that, I think it sets a framework for having a better understanding of this question about the difference or the similarity between the God of the Old Testament, the God of the New Testament, but also sets up really well uh, the answer to the question, why do bad things happen to good people? And as we're doing this, I'm going to answer a couple of other questions that, uh, that came up as well. So let's just start at the beginning in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And one of the questions that came up was, how old is God? Great question. One of the kids was asking that. A parent actually sent in and said, my, my kids were asking us, how old is God? And we answered that God is older than time, which I thought was actually a pretty good answer. Kids come back, being smart kids, and they say, well, how old is time? You know, so there you go. So I went to that, <coughs> excuse me, I went to that source of all knowledge, Wikipedia and the internet, and I found a couple of different answers. And actually, they range from about 6,000 years, if you go back a couple of centuries, to a guy named Bishop Usher who tried to take the genealogies of the Bible and map them all out, and he came up with a specific date, and it was about 6,000 years ago. Or if you go to NASA's website, they say it's about 14 billion years. I think they actually come up with 13.8 billion years accurate to within one half of one percent or something like that and I'm not quite sure exactly how they do that but if I have to answer the question how old is the universe I'd say you got me stumped I don't really know and when I get to heaven that'll be a question that'll be on my list to ask God and if I still remember it then 
I'll ask him and we'll see what he has to say. But if you're talking to one of your children and they're asking, how old is God? I think it's a great answer to say something like, he's older than time. He's older than the universe. The, if you want to take it one step further, however, if the kids were a little bit older, if you want an answer for yourself, <clears throat> I'd say, I think a better way to look at it is to say, God is outside of time. It's almost what we might call a category mistake to say how old is God because we're imposing our time-bound human limitations on God. And God himself is really outside of time. Look at John chapter 8. Very truly I tell you, Jesus answered, before Abraham was born, I am. If you're in high school, try turning that sentence into your English teacher and see what she says when you, know, when you get the grade back. Jesus is messing with the grammar there. How can he say, before Abraham was born, I am? What he's essentially saying is that I am the eternal present. Everything in some sense is in the present tense for God. He's outside of time. He's outside of the story. Think of it kind of like a book or a movie or a play. And you're thinking about the author, say, of the book. The author of the book is outside of the time that's occurring in the book. She's outside of the story. She can see the beginning and the middle and the end all at the same time. The characters in the story are experiencing the story in sequential form. Time passes for them. And if we're reading the book, most of the time we suspend sort of our, our understanding, our, we suspend disbelief, and we jump into it and we experience what's going on with the characters. If we want to, we can jump to the end of the book, and I know there's a few people who seem to do that, but for me, it kind of ruins the story, and I want to I experience it along with the characters. But if you're the author of the book, you're outside of the action. You're outside of the narrative. You're outside of time. And that's the way it is for God with regard to us. So he sees the beginning and the middle and the end. So when we ask the question, is, is, uh, is the God of the Old Testament the same as the God of the New Testament? How do we reconcile the vengeful God of the Old Testament with the loving God of the New Testament? I think if we step back and see we've got a timeless God who's not changing, he's just beginning to reveal over time different parts of the story, different parts of who he is and more and more of his character. And so I think that's a lot of what's going on there. And one of the insights we can gain from this is we've got a God who is not taken by surprise on anything because he sees the whole timeline all at once. He knows what happened before. He knows what's going to happen in the future because for him, it's all in some sense an eternal present. And so that brings us to the next question. Why did God create people? Why did God create the world? And I love that question. There's a guy named Jonathan Edwards who lived uh, in the 1700s and he wrote a several hundred page book uh, that's called The End for Which God Created the World. And if you wade through that book, and I've read it a, a couple of times, it's, just an, it's a great book, but it's really, really dense. And if you wade through it and you boil it down into sort of a tweetable kind of phrase, why did God create the world? Because he wanted to. Because it gave him pleasure. Because he is creative and he wanted to express his creativity. Why does an author write a book? 
why does an artist paint a painting? Why does a composer write a piece of music? Why does a sculptor create a statue? Because she wants to. Because it gives her pleasure. Because that's who she is. And in some sense, she can't help but, doing, but do that because if she doesn't do it, there's something inside that's just dying to come out. And it has to express itself. And that's the kind of God who we have. Why did God create people? Why did God create the world? Because he wanted to. Because that's who he is. Look at, uh, look at Isaiah chapter 43 here. God says, bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created from my glory whom I formed and whom I made. And God made us in his image. If you remember uh, back from the early chapters of the book of Genesis, God created us as his self-portrait because he wanted to. And he enjoyed doing that. And he enjoys that relationship with us. And so when we think about it from that perspective, we realize that we've got a God who enjoys us, who delights in us, who wants to have a relationship with us, who's glad that he created us. So then we go to the next question. Why did God create bad things? Why did God create evil? And you see we're beginning to get closer and closer to that question about uh, why bad things happen to good people. If God is good, why is there evil in the world? And in some sense, if we're honest with ourselves when we ask that question, we're questioning God's character. We're saying, how can God be good? Or how can God be competent and yet there be evil in the world? Huge, huge question. And I'm just going to kind of scratch the surface of it now and a little bit more as we come back to the bad things happening to good people question. But I want to start the answer to this question again in the book of Genesis in chapter 1. God saw all that he had made and it was very good. Why did God create bad things? He didn't. Everything that God created was good. Everything, as he pronounced it, was very good. God did not create bad things. But what he did do is he created human beings in his image, and he gave us free will. He gave us the opportunity to make choices for ourselves. He's the source of life. He's the source of all that's good. He put us in a perfect environment. He provided all that we needed, and he gave us a choice. And he said, I've created you essentially to be dependent on me, and I've provided everything you need, but I'm not going to force you to follow me. I'm not going to force you to trust me. I'm not going to force you to depend on me. You've got that choice. And we chose to try to act independently of God. And that's when things went bad. That's when the relationship between Adam and Eve was broken. That's when the relationship between Adam and Eve and God was broken. And since then, every relationship that we have, whether it's with one another or whether it's with God, has been broken. And so there's where the introduction of evil, in some sense, came into the world. Not because God created it, but because he gave us free will and we made the choice to try to act independently of him. We weren't capable of doing that in the way that we ought to be able to. And things went from bad. And in some sense, they went to worse after that. So the world's broken, absolutely. 
but it's broken really because of us, not because of God. But interestingly, right in the middle of what was going on there in Genesis chapter 3, God says he's speaking to the serpent. And and if you're not familiar with Genesis chapter 3, the serpent had uh, tempted Adam and Eve, and they had chosen to listen to the serpent rather than listen to God. They ate the forbidden fruit that they weren't supposed to eat. They exercised their free will, but independently of God, got him in trouble. God is speaking to the serpent here, and in Genesis chapter 3, he says, I'll put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. And when you look at this, you're like, what does that have to do with what we're talking about? But look at the bolded phrase, he will crush your head. God is making a promise here, not so much to the serpent, it's, it's, it's more a promise of judgment to the serpent, but it's a promise to Adam and Eve, it's a promise to us that the day is going to come when an offspring of the woman is going to defeat the serpent, or if we step back and see what's going on kind of behind that, when the Messiah, when Jesus is going to defeat Satan, when good is going to defeat evil, when what's wrong is going to be made right. Now, did Adam and Eve get that at that point? Absolutely not. Did people throughout the Old Testament get that? I think they were beginning to get greater and greater understanding as time went on. But if you think about the Bible in terms of it being a a story, a true story, a narrative, and there's a storyline going on, God is giving a preview right here, right at the beginning of the storyline of something that's going to come thousands of years later. And if you think about any good book or any good movie, if you've seen the whole thing, you look back and you say, oh, early on, that's what was going on. Now I get why there was that particular thing that happened there that becomes significant only near the end of the book or near the end of the movie or near the end of the play. So that's what's going on here. God is giving a preview of something that he's going to do in the future. And so then if we pick up the storyline there, so God created, we chose to act independently, everything got messed up, evil's introduced into the world, God makes this promise in a way that they're probably not going to get at that point, but we see it with great hindsight. And the very next thing that happens in Genesis chapter 4 is murder. And that's, that's where we go next. Genesis chapter 4, verse 8. Now Cain said to his brother Abel, let's go out to the field And while they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. So we choose to act independently of God, introducing evil to the world. And the next thing that we see is one quarter of the world's population is killed in one act. Now, yes, I understand there may have been other people around at that point. But when you think about it, the only characters that have been introduced are Adam, Eve, Cain, and Abel. And one of the four kills another one, you know. Think about that. Is that the way that God designed it to be? No. Is it God's fault? No. Is God angry at that? Well, yeah, he ought to be. I mean, think about us. Do we get angry? I mean, there's been some stuff in the news over the last few weeks, actually any day that you turn on the news. Is there stuff that's going to make us angry? Murders or child abuse or poverty or injustice or disease or whatever it is. Do we get angry at those things? Absolutely. What would we think of a God who never got angry at anything that's evil? Well, that wouldn't be a very good God, would it? So we need to think about that. We need to understand that God is holy and he's pure and he's just and he's righteous and he's good. 
And he doesn't like evil. And so, yeah, he gets angry at it. And yes, he pours out his wrath on it. And what comes right after Cain and Abel? The next, the next major event that we read about is Noah and the flood, where God says that the world has started to get even worse and worse and worse. And he says, I'm going to wipe it out and start over with Noah. You know, so do we understand why? Yeah, because we chose to act independently of God and to, to live in a way that he didn't want us to live. And so then the rest of the Old Testament, if you follow through with the storyline, and I'd love to spend some time going through this, and someday if we, if we have the opportunity, we'll do it maybe in kind of an interactive fashion so we can answer, ask and answer questions back and forth. But if you trace kind of the story, the rest of the Old Testament, what happens after the flood? Well, you've got you know, a number of different men and women uh, uh, in the Bible, and each time that God is interacting with people, he says, just trust me. Just live the way that I tell you to do and things are going to be a lot better off for you. And the people say, yes, we will. And then 15 minutes later, they choose not to do it. And then God says, okay, well, you got to do this. And they say, yes, we will. And he says, trust me, yes, we will. And then they don't. And it's over and over and over again. And he gives, he gives them kings, he gives them prophets. And yet over and over and over again, we are continually choosing to try to act independently of God, which we are not capable of doing, and we keep messing things up. And so it's no wonder that the world that we live in is broken. It's no wonder that there's difficulties and, and problems going on. But sprinkled throughout the Old Testament, in the midst of all of those difficulties, we see this thread that began in Genesis 3.15, and we see some people who really were getting it. For example, Genesis 15, verse 6. Abraham believed the Lord, and he credited it to him as, righteous, as righteousness. Abraham wasn't perfect, and if you know the story of Abraham in the book of Genesis, he messed up a lot of times. But he trusted in God. And God said, because you trust me, I'm going to view you as righteous, and we're going to have a right relationship. And so you've got Abraham, you've got Isaac, you've got Jacob. Some of these names are familiar to some of you, some are not. You've got Moses, you've got Joseph, actually who comes before Moses. You've got David, you've got Isaiah, and it goes on and on and on. And there are dozens of men and women throughout the Old Testament who got it. They weren't perfect, they were fallen, they were broken, they were sinful, just like we are. But they got it, and they, they recognized that God had made promises. He was going to keep those promises, and they were looking forward to his fulfillment of those promises, and they were trusting in him, and they had a right relationship with him. And then we come to a passage in the New Testament, in the book of Hebrews, that's looking back. The author of Hebrews is looking back over the timeline of the Old Testament, and he writes this about some of the, the men and women of faith of the Old Testament, he says, these were all commended for their faith, yet none of them received what had been promised since God had planned something better for us so that only together with us would they be made perfect. These men and women, like Moses, like Abraham, like his wife Sarah, like David, like a woman named Ruth, like Rahab, like Isaiah, these different men and women of the Old Testament were trusting in God, yet because they were early on in the storyline, they never received the promises that were going to be fulfilled later on 
because what God is saying is he didn't want to fulfill all those promises back then until the right time came and we were going to be able to be partakers. We were going to be able to receive the benefit of those promises as well. So the story had to unfold. It's not that the God of the Old Testament was a mean and vengeful and wrathful God and the God of the New Testament is some sort of a, you know, a, a milk toast or, or in a positive way, a loving and gentle God, a kinder and gentler God. Same God, no change in God, just an unfolding of a plan that he had set in motion really from day one, really from before the foundation of the world. And that brings us to the New Testament and John chapter one. In the beginning was the word. Look at the link that's going on here with Genesis chapter one. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. How did God create the world? He spoke it into existence by his word. So in the beginning was the word, the word was with God, the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. And you think about the continuity with Genesis 1. John is taking us back to the beginning of the story, making that link and saying, now when Jesus, who's the word, comes on the scene, we're seeing the beginning of the fulfillment of God's plan that he set in motion from day one. Verse 14, John chapter one, the word became flesh. He made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory the glory of the, as of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Think about that. We've got the creator entering into his creation, or to use the analogy we've been using, the author enters into the story. And it's not a fictional story. And once in a while, you know, in, in some of these fictional stories, like, uh, you know, you've got Alfred Hitchcock makes a cameo appearance in his movies, you know, that's not what's going on. Or Da Vinci sometimes painted himself into his paintings. That's not exactly what's going on here. You've got the author entering into the story in order to rescue the characters of the story from a plight of our own doing. And that's the kind of God that we have. And he's outside of time, so he's looking at the entire story all at the same time, all at once. And so it's not that he changed. It's not that he got kinder and gentler. It was planned all along. He just had to unfold that story. And we see kind of a culmination of that in John chapter 3. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, his one and only son entered into the world that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world. God didn't enter into the story to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. So God was not planning, his goal was not condemnation, his goal was rescue. And he fulfills that in his son, in Jesus. So when we ask the question, has God changed or is the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament the same or do we have a vengeful God in the Old Testament, loving God in the New Testament? Same God, no change in God, just an unfolding of an amazing plan where the creator of the universe wants to have that relationship with us and embarks really on a cosmic rescue mission 
to save us from, from ourselves and from our sin. So then we come to the question, so why do bad things happen to good people? And in some sense, we've begun to answer that question. We live in a broken world. We live in a world that's not the way that it ought to be. And so uh, when one person said, why did my child die? And why did he have to suffer in the process? You know, it, at some level, I don't know the answer to that question. Why exactly somebody's child had to die? And in fact, I almost hesitated to ask and to answer that question today because for so many people, the question of bad things happening to good people is not really an intellectual question. It's an emotional one, right? You know, we can answer, we can give an intellectual response, and I will, I'll do that in a minute. But I want you to understand that the first thing people need often when asking that question is not an answer. What they need is a hug, right? You know, we understand the world's not the way it should be and that there's pain associated with that. And so if someone's asking you those why did this happen question, start with a hug, start with some tears, start with some care, start with some empathy because it really is a heart question and it kind of gets at our very souls as we're looking at this. And please understand, I appreciate the depth of this question and in the few minutes that we have remaining, there's no way to fully answer this and, and Chris and Rich and I have been talking and, and sometime in the coming months we hope to have an entire message if not several messages that might address this question but for today I just want to give you a, a couple of thoughts to kind of get your thinking uh, in, in what I think is a helpful direction. So from an in intellectual perspective suffering and death are part of living in a broken world. It's not the way it ought to be and it's difficult because we're living in the in-between time. We're living between the Garden of Eden and the time when God is ultimately going to set everything right. And so we're living in a difficult time from that perspective. And most of the time, we don't know the particular reason why somebody suffers. Once in a while, okay, the lifelong alcoholic to, who develops cirrhosis of the liver, I think we can see a connection there. But the child who dies, the person who's killed by a drunk driver, the person who gets cancer, I don't know. I don't know. And most of the time, God does not give us a particular answer. And so in some sense, those intellectual answers aren't sufficient because they don't really address the pain that we're facing. And so as I was chewing on this, I was reminded of a passage in the Gospel of John in chapter 11 where we read the account of one of Jesus' uh, close friends named Lazarus. He wasn't one of the 12 disciples, so you may or may not have, uh, have heard of him. But there was Lazarus, and he had a, a sister named Mary and another sister named Martha. And Jesus used to hang out with them, spend a lot of time with them. He'd spend time at their house, and, and they had a good relationship with one another. And Jesus learns that Lazarus is sick, and then Lazarus dies. And Jesus arrives on the scene four days after Lazarus had died. And then we see what he says, what happens here in, in John 11. And when Jesus saw Mary... Lazarus' sister weeping, and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit, and he was troubled. And when we read that in English, it sounds like an emotional, you know, he's, he's sad, and he is, and we're going to see that in a minute. But that phrase, he was deeply moved, 
It's a little bit difficult to translate, but probably the best way to translate that was he was indignant, he was angry. It's actually used in secular and non-biblical literature of a horse snorting. And I thought about trying to make that, you know, kind of noise for you. Can't do that. The idea is it's just, it's like, you know, that's not the way it's supposed to be. I didn't create the world to be that way. Death is wrong. Suffering is wrong. And it angers me. I'm outraged. I'm indignant at that. And when I think about that, it's actually comforting to realize that the God of the universe hates death. He hates suffering. He hates pain. And he's indignant at it. And then, and then just a couple of verses later comes the shortest verse in the Bible. You'll memorize it in two seconds. Jesus wept. Shortest verse in the Bible, perhaps the most comforting. Why? Because what that's saying to us is we have a God who shares our pain, who feels our pain. It's an emotional response. He's not weeping because he's never going to see Lazarus again. And if you know the story, he actually raises Lazarus from the dead just a few minutes later. So he's not crying because he knows he's not going to see Lazarus again because he is going to see Lazarus again. He's crying because he sees the pain that Mary and Martha and others are going through and his heart goes out to them because they are suffering because of the broken world. And so he suffers along with us. Our God cares about us. He shares our pain. He feels our pain. And ultimately, he's going to do something about it. But the story is still unfolding. And if we look at the end of the Bible, the book of Revelation, and we see what happens here. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people. He will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. God is creating, actually he has already created, a place for us where we're going to get to be with him forever and ever. No more crying, no more mourning, no more pain. He's going to wipe away every tear from our eyes and we're going to get to be with him for eternity in a place of bliss, a place of, of happiness, a place of joy, in a place that's free from all the brokenness of the world in which we live. And I wish I had more time. I wish I had more time to explore God's plan for rescuing us from this broken world. I wish I had more time to answer the question, why do bad things happen to good people? Because really, I've just given you a brief overview. And if you want to dig deeper into some of these things, if you've got some questions, if you're a little bit frustrated, let me know. I'd love to talk to you offline. And actually, uh, in something that we call the project, we dig a little bit deeper into a couple of these things here. We begin to see a little bit more of the storyline, and we have some good discussion on that. And so I'd encourage you to go to our website, sign up for that, and uh, it's a great opportunity to just take a couple of steps further in your relationship with God. But I want to close with another uh, couple of verses from John chapter 11. Jesus said to Martha, that was Lazarus' other sister, I'm the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Martha, 
Do you believe this? And there's our hope that the God who created the universe, who gave us free will, allowed us to choose not to follow him, allowed us to break what he had created, who entered into the story in order to rescue us, has conquered death. He's the resurrection. So Lazarus died and he was raised. Jesus died and he was raised. And we, when we die, if we're trusting in Jesus like Abraham, like Isaac, like Jacob, like Moses, like David, like Isaiah, like Rahab, etc., 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 from the Old Testament, if we are trusting in God, then we too will be raised with him and get to spend eternity with him in a place that's free from all those difficulties, from all the pain that we're experiencing in this in-between time now in this broken world. And the question that I need to ask myself every day and that each of us needs to ask ourselves is, do I believe this? Do I believe that the God of the universe entered into his creation in order to rescue me from myself, from my sin, from a plight of my own doing so that I could be restored to my relationship with him and even find comfort now in the midst of the suffering. The suffering doesn't always go away, but we can find comfort in that. Do I believe this? And whether, whether you're early on in your journey of faith or whether you've been a follower of Jesus for your entire life, all of us need to ask ourselves this question on a daily basis. Am I looking to him? Am I trusting in him? Or am I trying to live life independently on my own? We've got a God who loves us, who cares for us, and who is ultimately, when the story is finished, is going to take us to be with him forever in a place of joy and happiness and bliss as opposed to the brokenness that we enjoy now. And the question is, do I believe this? And let me encourage you, take some time to think about that. Take some time to pray about that. And if you come to that point where you say, yeah, I believe this, we can have that confident hope that we're going to get to be with God forever. And even here and now, we can find comfort in the midst of our suffering. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you. Thank you for creating us. Thank you for making us look like yourself. Thank you for giving us the opportunity to have a relationship with you. Thank you for entering into your creation, entering into the story, entering into this world so that we could be rescued from the brokenness of this world. And I pray that each of us would turn to you, that we would find comfort, that we would find hope, that we would find peace. And we thank you that if we're trusting in you, we get to live with you for eternity. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So, hey, this week was a, a pretty heavy one because of that question at the end. Next week, some of the questions are going to be a little bit lighter, and I would really encourage you to come back out for that, and we'll look forward to answering some of the other questions as well. Thanks.